Hey, it's episode four of How I Got This Gig, and today I'm talking with quintessential one-man video production band, Chris Atkins, about how he went from wedding videographer to documentary filmmaker. Plus, he explains how a strategy of taking on work that others turned down helped advance his career. And of course, we talk camera gear. You into that? I am. Let's do it. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Dean Rainey, your host for the next hour plus. And in this episode, we're going to be talking with director DP Chris Atkins. No, not the star of The Blue Lagoon with Brooke Shields. No, I'm going to be talking with Chris Atkins, the Canadian director DP. Uh, He's got to be one of the most successful one-man video production band guys that I know. Honestly, this guy can do it all. And in our interview... He talks about how that all came about, and we also talk about working in dangerous places around the world and what that's like for for him and and his wife. And of course, we also go over his current camera setup. So all of you gearheads out there are going to love that. Okay, it's episode four. And so far, we've been getting some pretty good feedback on the show. Thank you for that. Hey, thank you for listening. And if you wouldn't mind, while you're at it, while you're listening, if you're on iTunes there, would you mind going over and just rating and reviewing the show there? That would be great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Before we get to Chris's interview, I want to talk a little bit today about working with talent. You know, actors, actresses, spokespeople. Uh, Sometimes you'll have to work with the talent that is on camera, and, and they're also the client, which comes with a whole bunch of other challenges and, and sensitivities, but today I want to talk about just working with sort of a hired uh, talent that comes on set and does their job, and, and, and that's as far as the relationship goes. And for you as a director, it's your, it's your job to, to pull the best out of them and to take care of them on set. Okay, I want to share a little story about a time where I had a conflict with a talent, and it ultimately resulted in me having to fire her from the job and, and have her removed from set. Uh, so we were shooting on location in Thailand. And when, you, when you're shooting in a foreign land, that always comes with a whole bunch of other challenges, you know, language, crew, temperature, equipment. I mean, it was 40 degrees when we were shooting on location here uh, at a rented house. And we had some talent that spoke English and some talent that didn't speak English. And so we were all set up uh, and ready to shoot. And uh, we called for the talent to come out. Now we had the talent all dressed There are four of them. We had them all dressed in traditional Thai outfits. And two of the talent were totally comfortable in these clothes. Uh, A third one was okay with it. And the fourth one, a girl did not like the outfit. Did not want to wear the outfit. Did not like the makeup. Did not like the hair. And let everybody know about it. And she shows up on set and she's already in tears. And she says, I don't want to wear this. This is ugly. This is stupid. I'm not wearing this. Now, we've got four talents, and two can speak English, two cannot. They can only speak Thai, and so they don't know what's going on. They just know that this one girl is losing her mind about something, and she's crying, and and she's... I mean, we couldn't even really get her on set. We couldn't even really get her into position, Uh, but we're trying our best, trying our best to coax her and kind of bribe her, and let's just get this done. It's so hot. 
you know, there's a pool here. When we're done, you can go jump in the pool. You look beautiful in this outfit. Your hair's all done up. You got makeup on. You never usually get to wear makeup, but now you get to wear makeup. Well, nothing was working. Nothing was working. She just wasn't having it, and the tears start coming. The tears, the tears, the tears. And we finally get her into position, and she's not cooperating. And in fact, she's, she's sabotaging. And uh, if you know anything about improv, there's a rule in improv. There's a first rule in improv. And that is, if someone gives you a line or says something to you, it doesn't matter how absurd it is, your answer must always be yes and yada, yada, yada. You add to it. You do not block it. You do not take away. You never say no and block it, right? Well, that's what she was doing. And now I can't expect her to be an expert on improv, but I expected her to at least play off of the other talents that were there, but she wasn't. She made everything about her. She got one line out, and it was kind of hammy, sticky, I guess, and she got a laugh, a laugh of maybe frustration from me and a laugh from the Thai kids who didn't understand what she was saying, but she got a laugh, and she would not let that go. She kept repeating it and repeating it every time she was asked. She just kept repeating that, and she was, should I say, saucy, and she just made the entire shoot about her. And I had given her warning after warning after warning until finally I turned to my executive producer and I said, we we can't do this with her. We cannot do this. She is completely distracting the other kids. The other three kids, we were working with kids. All right, I'll be honest with you. These are, these are, these are children And, and they can only work a couple hours a day because of attention span and because that, that's just the reality. They can't go longer than, than a couple of hours, to be honest, you know, and to be fair to them as well. But I said to my executive producer, I- I've, never, I've never dealt with this before. I think this is such a distraction to the entire cast here, four of them. She's got to go. She's got to go. We've got to do it without her. Okay. My executive producer says, yep, you're going inside. You're out of, off the set. You're off. She <laughs> takes her inside. Tears, crying, screaming. Oh, my goodness. And I say, we got to do it. We got to do it without her. Well, well, okay. Well, the other, the other three were fine with that. They just wanted to get the job done. But I was conflicted. I was totally conflicted after having this talent removed from set. And I will tell you why. Because she was my daughter. <laughs> she was my daughter, Natalie. You see, we have a YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel that's called Zach and Natalie's Vegetable and Candy Reviews where every few months we film a review with some exotic vegetable and some wacky candy, and and we have some fun with it. We make a short little video that we put up online to entertain people. And this is the first time where my daughter just totally pulled the old diva out from, I don't know where she got it, and she she just destroyed that set. And I had to fire her. I had to fire her from the shoot. And I had to do the candy review without her. It was her, her brother, and her two cousins who, I, you know, they don't speak English, so they were probably just wondering, what the heck is going on? You know, but I, I was so conflicted. On one hand, I was like, we got to get this done. The cousins want to do it. Zach is so ready. And Zach really, really had a great episode. He's been very, very shy, and it's been hard to pull things out of him. But this one, he was so pumped to do it. He came prepared, he came to deliver, and he couldn't do it with Natalie there and with her just constantly throwing out just ridiculous non-sequentials that just sabotaged everything that, you know, so I knew we had to move ahead and get this with just the three of them, but I also felt bad. You know, it's my daughter. She's going to watch this 
episode later in the future. She's going to be like, why am I not in this? And we have to have this whole discussion. But I was also furious at the time in the moment. And it's 40 degrees and you're just sweating and the candy's melting and the, the vegetables are wilting. And my wife is, was the executive producer and she, she said, that's it. She's out of here. No way. And so we wrapped everything. We finally shot. I, I, we shot a whole, the whole review and I, I don't even know what we got. And I walked into the house and my buddy was staying with us, my buddy Richard. And he's, he's worked in television for a long, long time. And he says, you did the right thing. You did the right thing. You got to nip that in the bud. And I, you know, I thought, eh, whether he's talking as a director or as a dad, I, he's probably right. You know, as the, as the father, I'm trying to teach her to respect the other people, but also as my daughter, to respect her mom and me and to not pull this just total diva stuff for us. So we wrapped it all up and we went on with the rest of our vacation and we came home and I just felt so bad too, though, because I was like, you know, I don't want to be fighting with my daughter about this. I don't want to see her acting like that. And I also don't want to have to be coming down so hard on her and firing her from her own show. And so I, I, I took the footage and I said to the team, you know, we, we filmed something in Thailand, but I don't know if it's worth anything. I just don't know. I was just sitting there just with this big, huge black cloud over me of it. So three months go by and, uh, the team's like, they've got some free time. So Holly's like, I'm ready to edit. Let me get on that candy review. And so I said, okay, but you know what? I mean, you may see some stuff you don't want to see. I may be like the worst parent out there. A, a very strong director, but a bad parent. I don't know. I don't even remember. I've just kind of blocked it all out. So it was funny because she was editing all day and uh, I walked by her desk and uh, it was at the end of the day and she pulled off her headphones and she said, you made the right call. I'm like, really? She's like, Yes. Natalie was sabotaging everything, every shot. Zach was really trying to give it, and the cousins were there, and they were trying to do the best they could, and Natalie was just making it all about herself, and she just, nope, you made the right call. I said, okay, good, good. How's the rest of the episode going to be? She says, it's going to be one of the best. <laughs> I said, oh, no, too bad for Natalie. And I, is there a lesson here? I don't know. I don't know. Whether you're a parent or director, don't be afraid to stick to your guns. Lay down the law. You know, don't back down. Make sure they respect you, the other people that they're working with. I, I don't know. I don't know. Because I remember when I was filming this, I was like, forget it, forget it. We'll just keep her in because I don't want to be a bad parent. But then I was like, no, that'll just undo everything that we're trying to prove to her that she can't come in here and act like this in front of everything. Yes, she's only five years old. So I don't expect her to understand the rules of improv, but I do expect her to understand the basic rules of respect. So I'm going to put a link to Zach and Natalie's vegetable and candy reviews in the show notes here. Please check them out and, and share them if you get a chance. So this episode of How I Got This Gig is sponsored by Videotwins.com, helping people make better videos. Check out Videotwins.com for tips, tricks, and resources to up the quality of your video productions. Right now you can download our 2017 Video Production Toolkit, and you can check out a short video showcase we did on 360 VR cameras. It's pretty cool. We shot that while I was in Hong Kong with my video cousin, Thomas. So head over to videotwins.com to check out the goodies. Okay, on to my interview with Chris Atkins. Chris and I have known each other for a very long time, since high school, when we were interning at the same video production company in our small community. And then I reconnected with Chris when I moved back to Canada from Hong Kong, 
And, and he was very helpful to me in the early days of transitioning to a new career here in, in Canada. He was very helpful. He threw some work my way, which I will always, always appreciate. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with director slash DP, Chris Atkins. Okay. I listened to your podcast you did with the uh, the music video guy. Amit. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it was cool. Oh, it was good. Good, yeah. I think people are liking it. Because yeah. I just found it was like, it's so hard to get into this business. Yeah. And some people think their own story doesn't have a lot of value mm-hmm. because probably they're too close to their own story. Yeah. But I think it does. Just seeing the path that someone has taken. Yeah. How long have we known each other? You and I met... Oh, that would have been back in like 91. Yeah. 91 when we were both uh, doing our, our, was it co-op with Dean Johnston? Video business strategies. Yeah. Yeah. Those were the days. (laughs) Yeah. You actually, I remember you actually introduced me to, to Nirvana. I hadn't heard Nirvana yet. Really? You you used, you used a bunch of their music in a, in a project I think you did for school or something like that. And I remember listening, thinking, this is the coolest band I've ever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were a real music guy back then is my memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you, you played a lot in bands and you did audio or? I, I did a little bit of audio, not much, but I played, I played guitar. I, you know, I was always like, I loved metal, but nobody around this area really got into that. So my brother and I would jam and and I did play in some bands like your brother's band. I played oh, in right. I played in his band doing <laughs> Stephen Curtis Chapman covers, which oh I hate were you Stephen. rocking those out? Or? Oh, I hated them. I hated them. <laughs> but it was the only opportunity I could I could uh, I could play, you know, and actually go out and play in front of people. Uh, nobody wanted to hear the metal stuff. So you were doing the co-op. This is we were in high school, right? Yes. I, well, I just finished. Right. You're, so I'm a little bit younger. You're. I think you're a year behind me, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah, I went through Fanshawe College. Fanshawe College had a futures program, and I I had actually taken a uh, a correspondence course in photography, and that was and I, so I got my diploma in photography, but didn't know what to do with it. And it was for those uh, maybe younger who don't know. Uh, it was a correspondence course where you actually mailed out your tests and they would mail you back, uh, mail, not email, it's before email. Right. They would mail you back a package and you would do the course and do the tests and then send your stuff away and have it graded. And then a couple of weeks later, it would come back in the mail. This would probably also be the days of photography where you had to develop the film. Yeah. I mean, digital photography was not even thought of then. Right. I mean, not, not by people like us. Right. But I remember actually Dean Johnston was the guy that, uh, in a way, he was kind of like a, a prophetic visionary when it came to media. Because I remember him telling me one day, you're going to have these satellite dishes the size of pizzas and people will put them on their houses and businesses will use them. And I thought, because back then the satellite dish, it took up your whole backyard, right? It was right? huge. Yeah. And I remember thinking, what? That's, that can't be possible. And he said, one day we're going to edit on computers. And I'm like, that's not, that's just not possible. <laughs> and he was telling me, you would type to somebody, if you have problems, you type to somebody and they type back to you like real time. And I remember thinking, this, this is Star Trek stuff. We're like 100 years away from this kind of thing. He was a visionary. He was. I mean, I couldn't even comprehend it because I was living in a small town that didn't even have cable television. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. Um, so did you always know you wanted to be kind of in the visual arts? I knew I wanted to do something different, but I didn't know what. And because we come from the same area, you know, there is not that many opportunities. And there really wasn't other people doing this kind of stuff. So nobody knew. Right. Right. So I think my first exposure to it was I was always interested in cameras. I still have my first camera, which is like a little Kodak 110 that I bought at a yard sale for two dollars. 
I used that thing for years in every trip and stuff. And, uh, and then uh, in high school, uh, the Students Against Drunk Driving, uh, they wanted to do a film project. And they actually got some money, I think, from the school board and some community people. And so I was an actor in that. And this guy, Greg Woods and Steve Straza, they wrote the play and they put the whole thing together. And so I was one of the actors. But I noticed that uh, every time we'd get into a scene, Greg, who was directing it, would also be using his mom's VHS camcorder to film it. And he would be trying to get things done. And I'd say, hey, you know, I'm not in this scene. Can I help? And he'd, yeah, you take the camera. So then I ended up doing a fair amount of the camera work. Not all of it, but some of it. And so it just I was always kind of drawn to it. But I didn't know that it could be a career. So the, um, the photography was, the, was my way of doing something, right? So I got this diploma. It really didn't mean much. I mean, you, you did the tests and I got a high score on it. But I, at the end of it, I really still did not know how to take a good photo. Or, or if I took one, I didn't know why it was good. Because there was no like tutorial or you weren't sitting in a room with a teacher and a, maybe a model or something in nope. lights and no. No, they, they, would give you, they would give you a list of things to take pictures of and you'd go and then you would have the film developed for you and then you would send your pictures away. And I don't even remember getting any kind of critiques or, or, or anything, you know, it was, oh, really? yeah, it was like, okay, oh, I got marks for sending in some photos. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but is it like a couple months program a one year? It was like just, a year. Okay. Yeah. It was a year long thing. And so I'm, I can still remember some of the things mostly to do with film, like reticulation and filming, uh, not shooting outside in extreme cold or the, the problems you can have. Um, but I really didn't have a good concept of how the camera worked and aperture and ISO and all that kind really? of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do once you had that diploma? Well, then that uh, that gave me a reason to bug my dad to help me buy my first camera. And I got a Pentax PZ20. The great thing about that was that it had a pretty decent uh, auto features and stuff like that. So <laughs> so sports mode and all that kind of stuff. Right. And But that, that gave me a decent enough 35 mil camera that I could start doing things like weddings. And so ah. I photographed a few weddings, but then I kept finding people saying, you know, uh, you know, we've got a photographer or we have a relative who's a photographer. Can you do video? And so that's where, you know, this is after, I think this was after I was working with Dean Johnson. That I got all this stuff. Uh, so Dean was kind enough to let me take his camera sometimes for free. And that gave me opportunities to start videotaping weddings. And he would let me edit them at his studio for free. And wow. he, he always encouraged me to, uh, to, to take the stuff out. And, you know, and so then every time I did that, I would get a little bit better with the camera. Or, you know, you come back with some horrific mistakes. But now Dean was always really good at sitting there with me and showing me why this didn't work and giving me a better understanding of both editing and, and camera work. He was, he was really good. He was a really uh, great early mentor that I had. Yeah. When I was there, it was only a couple months. He wasn't that busy, but he was great about take the camera out, yeah. get out there, come back, you know, and then he would give great feedback. Yeah. Very positive. Yep. C constructive yeah, and constructive. positive. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Video's changed a lot since then. Yeah. Night and day difference. I mean, you were shooting Super VHS, yeah. probably with like an ENG yeah. camera. Yep. Super VHS. Then I got my first real video camera, the Canon L2. Uh, you could actually interchange lenses on it, although you, you couldn't afford. You could. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, I remember Huge getting that deal. camera. I remember taking that camera out and doing a couple of uh, shoots in Toronto and having pro guys uh, come up to me and be like, wow, you got the Canon L2. And I, I'm like, oh, yeah. And they're asking me questions, and I don't know the answers to, so I'm baking <laughs> everything, right? And, uh, and that was a high eight. 
Remember the old the old right. eight tapes? Yeah. So how did you save up for that? You just been doing a bunch of weddings and I was doing weddings. I started working at Carmen Cameras. And so I was working at Carmen Camera, so I had a pretty much a full time job, but at minimum wage. That's a that's a camera store. It's a bit of a franchise, I think. Yeah, like I don't it, know if they're still around. I don't even. think they are. But yeah, uh, but yeah they they were uh, they had uh, one of their camera stores and one hour developing in the Kmart Mall here in Simcoe, and uh, so that for me that was that was a real big move up as far as my knowledge went, because now I'm selling cameras. So as I'm doing that, I'm starting to get a, a better sense of what, you know, how a camera works yes. and what is good and what's not. And I was doing the one hour developing, which they, it wasn't one of those machines where you just put it in, you spit out the pictures, you package them, you go. We had to color correct every single photo. Wow. So that for me, that was huge. I didn't realize how much that has helped me uh, through my career since. Yeah, because that's something, the, even the photography course mm-hmm. that you took, didn't, they no. didn't deal with uh, developing no. color correction. Yeah, yeah, and so to sit there at the machine using CMYK yeah. and, and you know, adding, adding magenta to this and taking yellow out of that and all this kind of stuff and having to actually sit there for hours developing every single photo, color correcting every single photo, uh, that really gave me an understanding of color and and how to apply it in post and especially now using you you know shooting raw shooting raw or in you know s log i'm using the sony camera so i shoot uh, most of my stuff in s log s log 3 and uh, so being able to color correct those images now i'm always going back to what i learned back in 19 was it 94 doing the the photo developing on 35 millimeter film color correcting photos so after carmen cameras you stayed there for a while you saved up some money bought this camera and you said hey i'm a cameraman yep and then it was one of those things where people i started with weddings mostly weddings uh you know and i found that i could make 500 bucks on a weekend and uh, what i really didn't like because i was back then it was still uh you know tape to tape machine to machine editing (laughs) a b cut yeah and uh and so what i'd have to do is i'd hook my camera up and I would have a VHS, two VHS decks. And I remember I bought this, I saved up, I got this really expensive super VHS deck that had the jog shuttle built in. Right, you could go frame by frame. Yeah, yeah. And so I would do my editing on that. But man, editing wedding videos, it was torture. And it really was not, it's not a good way to make money. And nobody is ever happy. No. Because uh, there's always something. So what I found was every time I would edit a video, I would always have the bride and groom coming back asking for copies of the raw footage. And what I found was people were telling me that they were watching the raw footage more than they were watching the edited copies. Because what during, during the day, I'm getting all the stuff that Brian and the groom don't see. Right. Right? I'm doing interviews with people, getting funny things with the aunts and uncles. And it was so amazing to me how you would start out that morning not knowing these people at all. And by the end of the day, you're best friends with every one of them. <laughs> and everyone feels like they've known you their whole entire lives. And it's really funny because by the end of that night when you're, when you're leaving, everybody's like, Chris, man, let's get together next week. Let's, we're going <laughs> to hang out. We're friends for life. And then you never see them again, right? But, but it, it was a pretty neat experience. And I, I have people ask me all the time, you know, how do I, get, how do I become a camera guy? Like, how, how do I learn? And I tell them, shoot weddings. Yeah. Because if you if you really want the adventure side of, of camera work, if you want to do, like, because I do a lot of stuff over, overseas, I do a lot of run and gun stuff where I'm documenting live situations as they happen. Nothing trains you better than shooting weddings because you're shooting in uh, poor lighting, 
unideal situations where things are constantly changing. What you had planned for the day all of a sudden is completely out the window and now you've got to adjust and figure out how to get audio and how to get around drunk Uncle Jim so that you can get to the good <laughs> stuff, right? So it's a really good training ground, like a boot camp almost for, for run and gun uh, shooting. Yeah, for documentary filmmakers. And, yeah. and I have seen that wedding video production has come a long oh, way. Yeah. Yes, they're adding a lot of bells and whistles, but people are starting to say, hey, I'm going to find the story in this day yeah. and I'm going to tell that story instead exactly. of just having like sort of a from the start to the beginning of the ceremony or whatever yeah so how long did you do weddings for then well um i did weddings for i think about three years and then i was at a wedding uh shooting actually at the crossroads center um in burlington and the photographer came to me afterwards and said are you interested in doing you know tv camera work i'm like that's what i've been trying to do I, and i used to call city tv i would call city, city tv every week and I'd sent in my resumes and I got, I can't remember the guy's name, but I would call him every week looking for an opportunity. And every week he'd, he'd be like, hi, Chris. Yeah, no, don't give up. Keep calling. But, you know, we're not. Uh, and, uh, were you living in Toronto? No, no, I was living in Simcoe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I was, I would drive. Like an hour and a half move. outside. Yeah. yeah. I, I would have figured out a way to, to, you know, I just, I want, I knew I wanted more than what we could, we could get in this area. Yeah. Right. But I didn't know how to get it. And uh, so, so I did what was in front of me, the weddings and stuff like that. Well, this guy then he he's he was uh, he was doing television camera work, and, but his photography business for weddings was through the roof. He didn't have time for it anymore. So he introduced me to these guys, Studio Thirty Three in Brampton, Ontario. They were doing some TV work, and uh, it was all studio work. And so I started freelancing there. And so I think once a month for a week, we would go up, and and I was there. I think for maybe. So it would have been like three weeks worth of work, three months that, that we're doing it when they decided to change the show and take it from live to tape to all post-production. And so all the crew got let go. And I, thought I, was, and I was also cleaning floors at Sobeys at the time. Okay. And yep. I was also freelancing at Waxworks Studios out of St. Jacob's. Uh, doing videos for, you know, internal videos for home hardware. I worked with them. And I was just like camera assist, whatever, uh, doing stuff for, even for the uh, the military. I remember working on a video on how, uh, teaching people how to camouflage vehicles. And Right. <laughs> and, and, how old were you at this point? Mm, 21, 21. Okay, just a hustling then. Yeah, yeah, whatever opportunities I could. So I was, I was doing everything from just holding lights and carrying stuff to operating the old big teleprompters, which, I mean, you had to have a cart to carry this stuff around. And I didn't know anything about teleprompters, but they said, could you do it? I'm like, sure. Right. And I would learn how to do it on the spot, right? And and people were usually kind enough to show me and have a little bit of grace with me as uh, as I struggled through some of this stuff. What uh, kind of show was that that you were working on at Studio, what did you say, Studio 33? Studio 33. So it was called Life Lessons. Now it's called Quick Study. It's still so going. It's still going. Yeah, to this day, it's still going. Um, I haven't talked to those guys in a while, but it was a great experience for me because at the end of when they told everybody at the end of that last shoot, guys, we're taking the show post production. We're not doing live to tape, um, so we really don't need uh, most of you because it was multi camera, maybe multi camera with a full with a full control room. So you had you had the director, you had yeah. the assistant director, you had the uh, the um, the audio guy. You had I mean, it's like a full crew, right? And then. Guys out on the floor, floor director and three camera operators and a lighting guy. Yeah. And so, uh, so I remember it was kind of a surprise for everybody. And I thought, oh, great. Yeah. So back to Sobeys, going to keep cleaning floors at night and doing weddings on weekends and 
operating, you know, teleprompter for, for Waxworks. And then afterwards they came to me and they, because uh, I had told them before, I said, look, I'll, I'll come and sweep the floors. I'll do whatever. Because you're good. You've been practicing at Sobeys. Yeah. You're very experienced. I was, I was a very good floor cleaner. <laughs> yep. And uh, yeah. And so they said to me, actually, we want to talk to you. And so I said, oh, okay. So after everyone left, they told me to stay. And after everyone left, they said, uh, you know, we're keeping a couple of guys on because the show's going to post, but we still need people to do the duplication and sending tapes out. So would you be interested in doing the duplication? Uh, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll take anything. So, yeah. so that one, I started doing all their duplication of their tapes for all the stations. And we were working with everything from the, uh, the M2 format to Betacam Oxide and Betacam SP. And we had, I think we had a D3 machine, which we had all the masters on. And so it was a full, you know, this is really before linear, nonlinear editing was really, was really hitting. It was around, but it was just too expensive for people to handle. Right. So, uh, so I was for a few years, I was doing that while also doing camera work for them. And then they had a couple of kids shows. And so then I started acting on the kids shows and oh really? Yeah, yeah. I was doing some goofy acting. Characters you are so well rounded in this industry. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. There's, I don't think there's too many positions I haven't uh, haven't at least had a little bit of time in. But uh, but that were that really gave me an understanding. Both uh, gave me a bit of an, more of an understanding for editing, but also the needs of broadcasters, and it really prepared me for for delivering programs, broadcast ready programs to to broadcasters because I was dealing with engineering. Uh, you know, departments and stations all over the U.S. and I'm sending them tapes, and they're calling up. We can't use it. Yeah, <laughs> so. that is the unglamorous side of the business, but so necessary. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a friend who's pitching a show to Nat Geo, and sure, they go over the budget yep. with a fine tooth comb, but then they go over the uh, deliverable uh, specifications or whatever it's called, and it's yep. like every frame rate and tape format and everything that yeah. will be included. It's and it's changed so much since I did that, but that has been uh, a real, I mean, that has really been a, uh, I don't know if I should say a big part of my business, but, and a very important part of my business because most of the work I do now is for television. Right. So I've got to deliver these shows to broadcasters and if it doesn't work, I have to figure out, they don't, the broadcaster, <laughs> they don't, a lot of times when I, especially the larger stations like Global, I was, I was looking over Global Specs. And they're not really clear. They're pretty vague. Right. And you think, okay, what what do you want? And I would call them up and you, I mean, because they're a large company, a lot of these guys are lifers and things have changed, but they've not kept up on it. So, you know, you talk to them and they, not only do they not know, they don't care. Right. So, <laughs> so they're like, just get us a program that works. Well, okay. Oh, you want the closed captioning embedded. Okay. What file format can you accept that does that? I don't know. <laughs> so, oh man! So I I would I would work and work and work and try and I'd drive these guys crazy until I'd find a way. Like I think sometimes I shouldn't be the one. Like I you should be telling me. I shouldn't be telling you. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. It's it's one of those things. I love a challenge. I love a challenge. I love figuring things out. I love problem solving. I mean, I'm, I shouldn't say I love it. I don't. Know. <laughs> Nobody really loves problem solving. But but uh, such a good feeling when there is a problem and you've solved it. Yes. Right? And for me, that's been a big part of my business uh, is just the, the troubleshooting. So would you say that that has given you an edge? Yeah. In your jobs, you can figure things out. Uh, the client can try new things, new workflows. 
Yeah, and because a lot of my clients are uh, fairly low budget, I'm not working on the big expensive docs. I've managed to make a career out of working for the guys that sh- probably shouldn't be on TV because they don't have the budgets for it, right? But uh, but I, I do enjoy it. Not always. I mean, sometimes it gets a little lonely because uh, in a way, I'm in a bit of a bubble. I don't often get to work with other people in the business. You are kind of a one-man band. Yeah, and that's been my niche. That's what has has you know allowed me to continue to have a career is because these they don't have a big budget for five or six guys. Uh, so we need to figure out how to get the same job done with one person. Right. And uh, that is both exciting and challenging and completely frustrating at times. Um, and so I'll have people ask me, you know, do you, Hey, do you know a camera guy or, or could you work with these guys? I don't, I don't know. I don't know them. I don't know who to recommend because I'm always working by myself. It's usually me and the client, uh, and I'm the only production guy. So, you know, it it can be, it can be a little frustrating at times, uh, especially if you're filming overseas and things start to go wrong because there's nobody else that you can count on. Even when I've been, when I've gotten sick or injured out uh, in the field, I fractured a rib on one shoot right at the beginning of the shoot. You know, they're paying this money to have you over there. You you can't just say, sorry, I'm not feeling good today. (laughs) You're the guy. I'm the guy. Yeah. Or you have a mic go down in the field. You're going to be away for two weeks and there's no place that you can get a microphone. What do you do? Now, has that been a conscious choice for you? Because I've always wondered, why aren't you scaling up? Why aren't you getting more people to work with you? But I've never heard you answer that it's yeah. your niche. So it's, I'm wondering, is this a business decision that you've said, okay, I can get all these gigs? Mm-hmm. It's it's not been a decision that I've consciously made. Uh, it's It's more the circumstances. I would love to work with other people. I would love to have other people that I could really count on that we could share the stuff and maybe give me some weekends off, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, but it just, I I think, you know, number one, I've chosen to continue living in this area, which really makes the, the pool of, of available talent limited. Yeah. Very limited. Um, because people just, we don't have the courses. We don't have those kinds of things. I think it's changing. I think we're starting to get more young people that are coming up. Um, but I'm seeing other issues that I'm not too crazy about on that side of it, but that's, that's for another day. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I really, I've looked at the idea of expanding, but every time I've tried, I've tried to move in that direction of expanding to include other people in my business and to take on larger projects it means that I'm doing less of the things that I love. Right. I'm managing now. I'm managing. I'm doing paperwork. I'm looking at budgets. I hate that stuff. I want to grab that camera. I want to shoot. I want to edit. I want to be creative. I want to be. I want to be the one that's on the road, you know, doing these things and not sending somebody else out to do them. So how are you managing that now, though? Because you still have to do budgets and you still have to. Yeah. Well, I mean, a part of that comes down to the my clientele. Okay. You know, having the smaller clientele, it's smaller budgets, but it's usually budgets that they can handle. So they tell me what they can afford. And then I tell them, okay, so this is how much money you have to work with. This is what we can do inside of that. So I let them manage their own budgets. And okay. uh, so it takes that burden off of me. And so it, 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 on the pro side of it, it takes a bunch of that business stuff that I hate 
and it keeps it in their hands, yeah. right? Because it's their business and I'm just providing a service for them. Yeah. Uh, the con, the downside of that is a lot of times I'm working on projects that I'm not necessarily excited about, but I like the camera work. So I find that is my, you know, that's the excitement. I like the challenge of figuring out how to make, you know, to give them a hundred thousand dollar project for $10,000, you know, and I like the idea that, you know, I can provide a quality product for them that people think, Hey, this belongs on TV and Oh wow. It looks like it's a hundred thousand dollars, but they only spent 10, right. you know? And so I like, I like that side of it, but you know, the other downside of that is, yeah, I'm not getting to work on the stuff that I would like to work on, uh, which I'm trying to change that. And so I'm kind of in progress now. I just did a trip to Israel where at the end of two weeks of filming for the client, I took a week for myself and I just started exploring and experimenting. I shot a few things that I'm going to try to turn into a couple of shorts. Oh, great. And I and that I'm going to try to put together and see if I can, uh, you know, maybe launch my own series. It's good that you can still find the energy and creativity to do that because, you know, sometimes after a two-week on-the-road shoot, yeah. the last thing I want to be doing is shooting some other stuff. Yeah, I, yeah, it was it was a little hard. It was a little difficult. Not easy. Yeah, yeah, as you're being away from home yeah. and, you know, your family's doing stuff and you're thinking, wow, why am I over here, you know? Yeah. So we're going to get into a little bit more of what takes you over to Israel mm-hmm. quite often, but let's go back here yep. and just catch up. So you are working for this company and you're doing dubs and mastering, yep. probably working in the, in the machine room, I guess. Yeah. and that mm-hmm. and uh we, you're still shooting on the side yeah i'm still shooting weddings um you know i was doing whatever anybody needed so yeah i had both dean johnson and mike fletcher the diver you know that was one of the first big uh shoot well really the first that was paid, a big break i think that for was you, eh? yeah well you know what that was the first paid gig first paid shoot that i ever did was the the atlantic stuff oh um, Tell us a little bit about that. The Atlantic is a shipwreck. The Atlantic is a shipwreck off of Long Point in Lake Erie. And Mike Fletcher was a local diver that found it. And him and Dean started working together to produce a documentary and to document all the stuff. Because it was a pretty big deal. There's court battles and yep. all kinds of stuff. And, and you were there through all that, yeah, right? Yeah, it was yep. exciting times. It was something for once in our own backyard here. Exactly, yeah. And so so Dean uh, paid me to go out on the boat with Mike and to start uh, to, to shoot you know, the top side stuff of Mike getting in out of the water. And, and so I was out there quite a bit. That was my first paid camera gig, uh, like doing like, for television, not, not the weddings. Right. 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 No. And, uh, and using a real television camera. <laughs> and, uh, and so they had me doing that stuff. They had me doing some editing. I think you were doing some editing on that stuff too. Yep. A little offlining, I think, or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and then when PBS picked it up and wanted to do a real documentary on it, and then I did some of the underwater work. And so I was, I was with, uh, with Mike at Dean's place. He had a pond out back and they, they sank a recreation of the set in a pond and, and then waited till, waited till it froze over. And we built a little control room on top of the ice, a little, a little ice hut and two holes, one for Mike to go down in the big brass hat and one for me to go down uh, with the camera. And Dean would sit on the surface with a line up from the camera to a monitor and a, and a Betacam SP deck. And he had a, a headset where he could talk to Mike. He couldn't talk to me because in the brass helmet, they could put communications in there. And so I would go down. Is this base. an old time brass yeah, helmet? Yeah, they, they, so yeah. The recre- this was a recreation. Oh, Yeah, this is one of the, oh, the old. This is great. Yeah, so we were doing the recreations of the dives that took place in the 1800s. 
And so, uh, so under the ice, you know, because that gave us the, uh, you know, enough light uh, to simulate uh, a, a deep dive because we're, we're recreating dives that took place at over 100 feet deep, okay. you know, in the 1800s. So Mike would go down in the brass hat and play the, ah, the part of the diver exploring the wreck. I would go down and basically be an underwater tripod. And, and so, and Mike and I worked out some hand signals. So he, he, Dean would be telling him, tell him to move the camera a little bit to the right, you know, things like that. And uh, more complex things. Mike would come over to me. He'd push my head up to his helmet and then he would yell, he wants you to go down the corridor. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, <laughs> so yeah, and under 14 inches of ice, uh, we're diving every night, two dives a night uh, wow. for, for like a week. Uh, so that was, I mean, that was pretty wild. I, I pretty exciting. Yeah. And that was where I really thought this, this is the career for me. I want to be that guy that goes places that nobody else wants to or can, you know? And so, and that's, that's kind of been a, a part, a big part of my career as well. After, uh, working with Fletcher and, and, and Dean, then what happened? You... Well, uh, that's when I was, uh, so Dean's company changed. And so all of a sudden there wasn't that many opportunities. So that's when I really started working at Carmen cameras and also cleaning floors at Sobeys and then doing whatever freelance gigs I could get, you know, a lot, that was a lot of the weddings and stuff through that period. Yeah. Um, and that was when I did that one wedding, which took me to studio 33 and the life lessons quick study show. That was where my full-time TV career, uh, started. So, you know, starting with the tape duplication and I did that for, I think it was a little more than a year. I was doing all their dubs and uh, shipping all the tapes to the stations. And then it was, uh, I remember one morning coming in and the owner of the studio, Rod Hembry, he, uh, he met me at the door and he said, come here, I want to show you something. So I remember it was a Monday morning after the weekend, I come in, he takes me to the back to the control room and there was another, there was another little room that used to just be just, just a room, right? And he takes me in there, and there's these two huge Apple computer monitors there and a huge Apple tower. And he said, this is an Avid. And I, I've heard of Avid, but I'd never seen one. And he hands me this stack of binders. And he says, you've got two weeks to learn the system. You're taking over the show. Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> cool. Okay. And so they brought in somebody else that I quickly trained and, 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 uh, you actually read the manuals. Yeah. I read the manuals. This is way before like lynda.com or oh, YouTube yeah, videos. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the internet still was not really fully realized at that time. Right. No. So, I mean, not like, not by me anyway. Um, so I, I don't think I'd even started emailing yet. I didn't know the difference between a windows machine and, an, and a, and a, and a power Mac, you know, right. like it, I had no concept of the computers. Uh, the, I think the only computer I'd used up to that point had been like a character generator, uh, Chiron, the, the Chiron. Chiron. Yeah. Yeah. So th that was my, that was the extent of my computer experience. And you read these manuals and self-taught yourself. Yeah. Self-taught yourself. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was a terrible student, but a good teacher. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, I figured it out. It took me two weeks. I remember. Wow, I, good for you. It was two long weeks. I had just gotten married, so I remember. I remember uh, a little bit of tension at home. Well, just I mean, because I live. First of all, I lived like two hours away from the studio, and yeah. then I'm spending longer at the studio trying to figure this stuff out and figure out how to do this this thing. Because it wasn't just like okay, here's how you do something. It was a complete mind shift. Yes, like there were completely new concepts that you had to wrap your brain around brand new equipment brand new concepts uh it, it was yeah it was it was 
a completely different animal. You know, being able to cut on on an AB roll tape to tape system was one thing. Um, you know, now you look back at that and think, how did I ever do that? You know, yeah, I can't believe anybody got anything done on yeah, that stuff. Yeah, we did. Yeah, and but then having to go from the, to to the avid and figure out, wrap my mind around that, try to understand a computer and editing and these new tools, and then the hardest part getting that video out of the computer onto a tape that people could watch. That was a huge challenge. Really? Oh, man. The amount of equipment you had to have, and it had to be just right. You know, your, your Genlock, your, you know, right. your, the sync with the machine. Because, <laughs> again, all these, these old machines, all these tape machines, still were not prepared for, like, they're analog. They're yeah. not prepared for a digital signal. You'd think, okay, I'd call home and say, okay, I should be home by 7 tonight. Ooh, and, yeah. you know, you think, it should work. You know, you just, I'm hitting record here, I'm hitting play there, it should work. And it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. And you don't know why. And you got to figure it out. And these shows have to go to the station. So you can't just leave. So, you know, I remember a few times working till like three or four in the morning when I thought I was going to be leaving by five. And, yeah. uh, and oh. yeah, trying to get this thing and solving these problems and having to get on the phone with Avid. Why doesn't this work? And so were you their head editor then for these yeah. shows then? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a pretty strong post-production background as well then. Really? Yeah. 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 That was, that was a big thing working. And this was a daily TV program. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So you got to crank these suckers out. So and they went from live to tape to put. Why would they do that on a daily show? That's a lot of yeah. It was, well, I guess it was cost issues. effective. It was a lot of work workflow yeah. issues, but it you know eventually it it worked out. And I remember them while I was working on the Avid. I watched the guys that work on the children's programs that I was acting on. That stuff looked a lot, a lot more fun. <laughs> but they but they tried to take that into um, into the nonlinear realm too. But of course, they couldn't afford another Avid system at the time. So I remember they were using, what was it called? I think it was called Fast, the Fast Machine or something like that. And it was PC-based. And it was terrible. It was <laughs> I can imagine. I've not even heard of that one. No, I don't, th- I don't think they're around anymore. Yeah. And then eventually they brought in a Media 100. Okay. And so that was actually, it wasn't theirs. They were renting studio space out to another company that I ended up going to. And they were operating on the Media 100. And that was a PC-based Media 100. And so I remember when I left these guys and went to the same, <laughs> the other company in the same building. Oh, um, how did that go over? <laughs> it, it worked. It worked out. You know, I yeah. still because I still had the ability to freelance, so they still had me acting on their children's programs, and I was still, you know, I'm still in the building. So when they had questions and stuff <laughs> like that, you know, I was so I, I kept friendly. There's really that's one of the uh, one of the things that has kept me. I think busy throughout the years is I haven't really burned any bridges with anybody. Yeah. And I think for the most part, anybody that I've ever done work for, even if it didn't end the best, I can still talk to them and we're, we're friendly. And a lot of my clients I've had for years. Wow. So yeah, even people that I, if I haven't done work for them in a while, they still every once in a while get a call up from somebody from the past. Hey, can you do this? And, and so that's been, that's really helped me not burning not burning bridges has also kept me, you know, employed, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I think it's all about relationships. Yeah. Really, in this business. So you're in this new job, mm-hmm. a post-production or camera, everything? So so what happened was, um, you know, this this other job, things things weren't quite working out. Still friendly with the guys. Uh, but I'm driving two hours to work every day. And, you know, I got to the point money-wise where I thought this just isn't making sense. And I, and I remember thinking... 
I it's probably better for me just to stay in Simcoe and get a job at Wendy's. It might be, you know, I, I just got to this point where this driving, the expense of driving to Brampton from Simcoe every day and the toll it was taking on, on me, and it wasn't worth it. Because you weren't considering moving to the city? That was we, not an option? We were talking about it, but yeah. this job really didn't pay enough. Mm. You know, we had gone up, we had looked in Orangeville, we looked around Brampton, and all of a sudden, like, the prices for renting were, you know, because we were just married at that right. point. It's like, wow, we, I don't know that we can afford it for, for what, what we're paying, so we're, what we're getting paid. So these other guys, it was this guy, uh, Bill Prankard, and so he is a Canadian evangelist who had a show called Sea to Sea, and he did a lot of uh, a lot of stuff through Canada's Arctic and Arctic Russia. And so when he found out that I had I had given my resignation at this where they were renting space, he called me up and he said, "I want to let you know that I don't have a job for you." I'm like, "Oh, well, thank, <laughs> thanks, Bill." <laughs> and he said, "But we're gonna make one." And I thought, "Oh, okay. What does that mean?" He said, "It means we're putting you on payroll." And we'll figure this out afterwards. Because my wife was going through a difficult pregnancy at the time. He said, go, be with your wife. You know, our first daughter was on the way. And he said, the money will be in your bank account. And once your baby's born and everybody's okay, then we'll figure this out. Wow. So he took a big he took a big risk on me. He sure did, so, yeah. So they started off by just giving me simple stuff that I could do from home. So I was logging their tapes. Yeah. So their son, Steve, was who's a really talented camera guy and editor and became a really good friend. He was shooting a lot of their stuff for their TV programs, but they would need it logged. So they gave me a little DV deck, and I would sit home, and I bought a computer, and I would type all their notes logging. So that really, that was another thing that I'd never done before, but I find I'm using the stuff I learned from that even today. So being able to log these interviews in a way that makes sense, that it's usable. Right. right? So, uh, and also watching hours and hours of these interviews, seeing how interviews were done, what worked, what didn't work, how to ask questions, questions that, you know, because every person you interview is different, you have to try and get something out of them. So seeing how, you know, sometimes they were really successful, sometimes it wasn't, and me thinking, you know, if they had asked this way, I bet this person would have responded that way. So that also helped me further down my career as well. It's, you know, there's so many unglamorous roles that you've had, but they have just given you such a great foundation yeah for being able to be producer cameraman yeah it's, it's allowed me to do the stuff for for businesses or organizations that really couldn't afford a full-fledged production company yeah and i've been able to do this stuff and that's the other thing that i notice is some of these jobs that i was doing i saw a lot of other people turn them down and so i saw a lot of guys like well i'm a camera guy i i don't i don't do logging <laughs> right right and, and i and to be honest with you i felt that way sure of yeah. course i thought oh man i don't want to log footage but hey you know i'm getting paid and i'm able to put food on the table and every time i take one of these jobs that other people didn't want not only did it give me a job but it gave me some experience and it gave me a relationship or a contact with somebody that down the road it's always ended up paying off wow so i've taken a lot of jobs that other people have turned down um, but it was through doing this, once uh, you know, it, this this allowed me to be at home with my wife, who went through a very difficult pregnancy. She was uh, they ended up putting her in London for a month. Oh dear! Yeah, and and my daughter was born a month premature, and I was able to be there through all of that. And so so it was great, you know. Yeah. And, and at the end of it, then Bill called me up and he said, "Okay, you know, your daughter's born." Now I need you to go to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> One day I'm going to come to you and ask yeah. you for a favor. Yeah. 
So they're sending you to Russia. So I'm going to Russia, not just to Russia, but to Siberia, uh, up in the tundra, uh, above the Arctic Circle in December. You know, so yeah, that was, and you know, I've done the run and gun stuff before, and this is where the wedding stuff started paying off. Right. uh, Because now I'm shooting in real non-ideal conditions and stuff that you can't control, and you've got to stay motivated and active to keep shooting, which in the beginning I found very difficult. You know, a lot of times you think, oh, they're not going to use any of this stuff, right? And then, you know, they look at you and they're like, why aren't you filming right now? Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're on 24-7. You got to be. Yeah. You got to be. You have to do it, right? And I remember really struggling in the beginning, having to self-motivate and thinking, ah, oh, I know they're not going to use this, but, uh. and you know what? A lot of times they did end up using that stuff Isn't or that something funny? would happen. Yeah. I mean, the time you have the cameras not rolling, that's when the, the gold moments happen. So being able to keep that thing rolling and to know where especially when you're the only camera guy and you're with a whole group of people which story do you follow which action where do you point that camera in these situations right how did they know you were ready for this uh, I don't think they did, uh, but they took a chance, right? Yeah. So that was that was the other part that's been uh, uh, amazing for my career is people that were willing to take a chance on me. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't always have the experience or the background to do it. Uh, I didn't ha- really have the education because I I didn't go to college. I took that that correspondence course. Um, you know, I got my grade twelve, and and I've got this this correspondence course. That that's it. I took yeah. a couple of workshops from Sony uh, that cost more than college. <laughs> But no, like, but, journalism degree nope. or, you know, screenwriting or nope. cinematography, film school, nothing, no. Nothing. Self-taught, pretty self, much. Self, you know, completely self-taught. Yeah. And just with with opportunities. Yeah. Opportunities that other people would turn down. And uh, so that was, you know, and this, this was my first real attempt at doing a documentary on my own. I come back from that Russia trip, and then they tell me, we want you to make a half hour, you know, basically a doc out of this. That they're going to put on TV, but they're also they use these videos to help raise awareness and funds for for their missions over there. What they're doing, trying to bring food and clothing to the natives. You know, we're yeah. going up to these. You know, they still call themselves Eskimos up there. They do eat raw meat. Uh, they don't see it as a derogatory term. Um, uh, so we were going out to the natives on the tundra, and and I, I would do a little story, a half hour story on. On the trip and what no, happened. No producer with you? Like, no, nobody. Uh, no, I'm, I'm driving a the story. You nope. were it. Yeah, yeah basically, you, it was up to me to find the story and, uh, and to figure out what to do with it at the end. You know, so they really gave you freedom to do it. And I remember, you know, it's, it's a little bit daunting, you know, and it's a lot daunting. Yeah. Okay. And then at the end, when they tell you this is what we want, and you're like, okay, yeah, all right. But then when I did it, when you know, and I had some time to do it, and I was going up to the studio in Brampton, working on that Media One Hundred, cutting my first Russia doc. Yeah, and uh, and at the end, you know, seeing them be impressed with what I did was like, whoa! I, I don't know. How, I mean, really, I looked at it when I was putting it together. Uh, I really wrestled with it a lot, but I'm looking at it thinking. What would I like to watch? Yeah. You know, what do I find fascinating about this? And when I did that, you know, what, how do I make it look cool? And I mean, for an organization, a faith-based organization that's doing humanitarian stuff, um, you know, I've seen so many of those things and they just seem so sappy. I wanted to make it look like it belonged on National Geographic. And so that was my goal. And everything that I do, whether it's a faith-based thing or a political thing or just a humanitarian organization, 
I want people to feel like they've watched something that belonged on TV. Yeah. And so I really try hard to put the the kind of music in and the kind of graphics and and you know I'm not always successful but uh at, at doing that but I, I am I have been able to to put together stories that have moved people. You've worked a lot in faith-based media. Mm-hmm. How have you found that? Well, I, I mean like any other business, there are some good people and there's some bad people. Yeah. <laughs> and not that I've really found bad people, but maybe some people that have not always been as, uh, I don't know, what's the right word, forthcoming or as honest as you would like, or as the, especially in an industry like that, that they should be. For the most part, it's been good people, but maybe poor decisions along the way. Mm. Usually bad decisions based on, you know, on a big heart. <laughs> Right. So, so there's, there's been a lot of times where, where you're, you're in situations like that, but you know, it's one of those things where I really did not want to be the, the, you know, the Christian TV guy, you know, I don't think anybody wants to be the Christian TV guy because <laughs> it's, you know, I find when people do find out, even though they've, they maybe have never seen any of my work, you say that you have a Christian television program that you're working on and people automatically assume that you don't know what you're doing. Why? Is that just because there's been a history of just bad Christian television production? I think so. I think so. I mean, usually it's stuff that, uh, that you know, is pretty corny, pretty cheesy. If you watch any, any of these Christian TV stations, especially from the States, I mean, it's ridiculous. And you have a guy sitting in his living room against a wall. I mean, it just looks horrible. And he's talking for half an hour and then begging for money. And so that's one thing that I've been able to steer clear from. I don't work on shows that beg for money. Yeah. And, and I, and I won't, I don't want to be a part of one of those, those, what I consider scam shows. So the shows that I do work on, uh, they don't beg for money. They do provide real true humanitarian support. So I've seen it from the stuff we were doing in Russia, where we were taking seven tons of food and clothing to remote villages that had nothing to, uh, to some of the organizations we work in Israel, where, uh, I was just at an organization called save a child's heart where they are going to third world countries and even enemies of Israel. And they're going in and taking children with heart defects and they are giving them these life-saving surgeries for free. Right. Wow. And so it's nice to, to work for organizations that do good stuff like that, that, you know, they they don't care what you believe you're a human being. We want to help. And so I like working, working for people like that. And so now I'm at a stage where the the shows that I'm working on now, these are shows that are doing exactly that, and they're good, solid people. Uh, so, so are you doing a lot of one-offs, or are you you're really doing longer-term series? I'm doing well, the series are the bread and butter. Yeah, those are the ones that keep the bills paid and allow me to be able to get the equipment that that I need to get. But there's always every year there's you know maybe two or three one-offs that I'm doing. So right now I'm working with a producer out of Ancaster named Kevin Dunn, and we are doing a documentary about euthanasia. So we've been traveling across Europe and across the states and documenting we're talking to both sides the pro euthanasia and the against euthanasia sides and just exploring and it's kind of his journey you know it's kevin's journey through trying to understand this and see where it's going um so so there's usually i usually end up doing at least at least one one one-off doc a year and it's never a conscious decision it's not january and i'm thinking okay i need one now it's uh it's it's just the way just the way it works out somebody usually comes to me with something or you know i have an opportunity to tell a story um but the series if you can get a series 
that's financially that's the best it's good for the business yeah and i'm working on on developing a couple of my own series right so uh and i think i'm getting close to to having uh you know a couple of multi-part series hopefully that would go on for years so <laughs> I, I won't say too much about them yet just because uh, i don't want to jinx it right <laughs> but uh yeah hopefully uh, we could talk again and i'll have some exciting news to to share that's great yeah. A lot of the subject matter that you deal with is pretty heavy. Yeah. How do you deal with that? It's not easy, um, especially especially the ones that deal with you know with vulnerable people getting hurt. Yeah. So uh, you know, I was I was documenting quite a bit of stuff with a guy named Majid El Shafai, an Egyptian guy, and we we're going into Afghanistan and Pakistan, and I ended up in Iraq with him, and I saw some really horrific stuff, and we told some really horrific stories and i don't honestly i don't like it i don't it's it's kind of exciting and you feel a little bit of you know goodness in your soul having shared some of these stories but it a lot of these stories keep you up at night yeah and uh, recently i've had some people asking me oh tell us about tell us about iraq you know and i spent some time with some yazidis uh, had escaped from isis that were sex slaves these poor girls the stuff that they go through and you know they're just i'm just sitting in front of them recording them telling their stories and i can't handle it like i was i was bawling my eyes out i could i remember looking at my viewfinder and not being able to see anything because <laughs> it's just i mean they're and they're saying it through a translator but right you're there in their presence i mean there's no way the camera does not do justice and having to cut these girls stories down and see like, is i don't even know how to describe it but you know i like the i like the happy uplifting stories better but i think i've always kind of felt when there's i've had an opportunity when when the door has been open for me to share these stories i think how can how can i say no right if you know there's always that thinking if i don't do it will somebody else you know am i am i meant to do this is this the you know if this door is open then i should go through it and so i've done that um but yeah it's it's not so easy and it's kind of funny it's a couple of years after the after the fact and it still affects me i still think about the people that i met every time you see something in the news and you think i was there you know i was there i mean even even just in europe uh, I was in Paris right before those attacks in Paris, and I was staying right in the middle of all those places. Wow! I was in Brussels, uh, I think, two or three months after the Brussels, uh, before the Brussels attacks, and I was taking the subway to the capital district, like right where the the bomb went off. There, I was in that airport where the bomb went off. Uh, I've had, you know, I've been closer to this stuff, I think, in Europe than I have in the Middle East. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it, it, there's been a number of times where, uh, you know, I've left a place and then something has happened. So it's, uh, you know, you, you, you do, being a traveling camera guy, you think, okay, when, when is it that I'm actually going to be face to face with one of these situations? I mean, your wife, what does she think? Uh, How does she deal with that? You know, in the beginning... Uh, especially when I was going to Russia and this was before, you know, before the world went completely crazy. Yeah. Uh, but you know, going to Russia and stuff like that. And at that time, communications were not so easy. So I'd go out on the tundra and then we'd have no contact for two weeks. So in the beginning she felt, uh, 
you know, she was uncomfortable and she had a hard time being home alone with the kids and wondering about me. And there's a couple of situations where, you know, we, we got arrested the one time and, and, uh, yeah, we, yeah, there's a bunch of situations where it was a little bit crazy, but, uh, I remember, um, one of the trips we were taking some Inuit with us to Siberia. And so the two of the, there's a couple, David and Dorothea Glukark, who their daughter is Susan Glukark. So a famous Canadian Inuit singer. And uh, my boss called me up and said, listen, we're going to this church before our trip and we're, they're having a little thing for us. And uh, can you pick up Susan on the way? <laughs> what? <laughs> you want me? Like she doesn't have her own ride? <laughs> and I remember going in my little Ford Escort. They gave me the address and I picked up Susan a glue car. Wow. And I drove her, uh, my wife and I, and we had our, our, our oldest daughter. Uh, she, was, she was our only daughter at the time. Uh, and she's in the back seat. She's, I think, like two and sitting in her car seat. And Susan is singing to her on the, on the way in. And what like, a trip. Yeah, this is weird weird yeah and she's like oh yeah i just got back from i was just touring i got back last night i was touring with the bare naked ladies i'm like what you're my escort now <laughs> uh anyways at that service uh you know they got up and she susan sang and stuff like that and then i can't remember if it was her or somebody else but somebody said you know would people stand up who are going to pray for the team while they're in russia delivering food and and doing all this kind of stuff and like everybody stood up and for my wife, she said that that was the one time where she felt comfort. And on that trip, she said that was the first trip where she didn't feel nervous and didn't have any anxiety about me going. And since then, I don't think she's had any uh, any issues with me going. Even when I was in Iraq, I wow. was in Iraq. And, and I mean, that trip, that Iraq trip was not safe. Like I ended up at the front lines. I, we were looking at ISIS through binoculars and they were looking back at us. That's how close we were. And then our convoy got hit. We're driving back to the airport and a car came out of nowhere. We're driving in these three black Lexuses in a Kurdish, uh, we're guests of the Kurdish government and they're driving us at night from, uh, from Duhuk to Erbil and we're passing by Mosul when this car comes out and hits our middle vehicle dead on, which is one of their tactics, right? They see a convoy, they drive into the middle of it and they detonate. Uh, fortunately, nothing detonated. Um, but yeah, the, that driver was, was killed and our people were hurt and it was, I mean, it was nuts. It was, it was nuts. Were you like at any point thinking, okay, I'm done with this. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was going to go back and do a fishing show. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? The fishing shows aren't so safe either. <laughs> I can believe that. Yeah. I think it was after that trip, I got home and we we're up on, on uh, a lake up in Northern Saskatchewan and lightning was striking. We're out in an aluminum boat with no cover and storm comes out of nowhere and the lightning is striking the island just like 50 feet away from us. Like you felt, felt it. And you're holding a giant camera. Yeah. Yeah. On water in, in a metal boat. And I remember saying to, to, to the guy, Charlie, I said, I didn't survive a rack to just come up here to get killed. <laughs> and those flying planes, I can't tell you how many times we've flown into these remote lodges only to fly home and find out that some plane with five people on it went down in the same lake. Oh, man. And so, I mean, at some point, you just got to say, when my time is coming my time is coming you can't you can't think about that stuff so much so you mentioned you mentioned like a, a client who has a limited budget they'll come to you and you'll say okay what's your budget and they'll say x dollars and then you'll say okay here's what you get for x dollars but because you are a one-man band mm-hmm. and because you do invest in a lot of your own gear how great is the temptation to just say well you know i'll i'll just give them the drone too and then and where do you draw the line to what because you're like mm, i really like this idea i might want to 
bring up the production quality for them. Yeah. But you might not get that return back. There's been times through the years where I've said, okay, for this budget, you get this camera and this lens and me and that's it. Yeah. Right. And then you get over there and you start seeing like, oh man, I could have made this so much better. And you know, you know that they don't really see it. You know that the client doesn't really get it and they're probably pretty happy with what you got. But knowing that I could have gotten those shots, especially if it's a place that I might not ever get back to, then the temptation to bring that stuff and to give more uh, is, is a little bit higher. One of the things that I've found is when I've done that, if, if it's a project, if I like the guy, if I like the client and I'm interested in what they're doing, it's a little bit easier for me to say, you know, what, I'm going to bring the drone. Might, I might not tell them that I have the drone, especially with the Mavic. It takes I could put it in a spot in my in my case that it, it's so small it takes a place of one lens yeah right uh so they they might not even know that i have it and then if i feel like you know what i like this guy i want to give them a bit more plus gives me more footage and some practice and you know a unique opportunity i might bring that thing out and give them a little bit more yeah um but that but that that gives for me i look at it as no they're not they're not paying for this footage they're getting a bonus but what am i getting I'm getting uh, I'm getting some footage and a chance to shoot someplace that I normally wouldn't have had that chance to, and it gives me the opportunity to sell myself to somebody else. Or yeah, if this is a, a an ongoing project, then I can say, look, this is what you paid last time, but you got this. So how about we up that budget a little bit more? And I I don't think I've yet been disappointed by giving more than 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 what I had planned on or what I was getting paid for. I think in the long run, that's given me job security because my clients know, hey, he gives us as much as he can. Uh, and so it they want to keep working with me. You bring them value. Yeah. Yeah, I bring them value. I up the value of their shows. And I think that in a way that ups my value. And that's also put me on other people's radar. So other, other organizations, other people have approached me afterwards because they've seen what I've done for other people. So in a way, I, I, and I've had people talk to me like, oh, no, you give, you give way too much. You shouldn't be doing that. And I, I think, yeah, you know, you're right. I really shouldn't be giving as much as I am. And, but for me personally, it's, it, it ends up paying off. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm able to, like all of my equipment, I own all of my equipment. I don't borrow money for it. Um, you know, and I love learning about this stuff. So it, it's, I don't know, I'm a bit of a tech head, you know, so <laughs> any chance, you know, that, uh, when I say to a client, okay, I'm thinking I might get a drone. I might bring a drone on this shoot. Oh, okay. Well that cost us more. Well, if you could afford a little bit more the, okay. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that right. works out that way. Right. It's um, all about relationships. Again, a yeah. lot of these things come back to relationships with your clients. Yeah. And there, there are some clients that I, I withhold. Yeah, there are there have been some clients that I think no, you're just getting this, and I'm not giving you anymore. <laughs> not that doesn't happen too often, but there have been some clients yeah, where I think, I think you have that's, to. Yeah, and it, it yeah it comes down to the relationship and and the value of their project. And if I believe in the project that that I'm working on, then it's also a little bit easier for me to give give more to that. So speaking of gear, what camera are you, what's your go-to camera right now? Uh, my go-to camera, there's two of them. It's the the FS7. I love that camera, although it's a backbreaker. Um, really? You think it's because it's heavy? It's, it, you put that thing on your shoulder, you try to carry it around for a while. It's heavy. You put it in your, in your carry-on, 
with the lenses and stuff yes. like that, it is brutal. Even compared to like the old Panasonic big monsters that were out. Well, I mean, that's ago, we like haven't that was... we haven't had those in a while, right. right? So yeah, it's definitely better than that. But I think the the shape of them is a little bit awkward. Oh, right. Yeah, they haven't quite gotten the design. It seems like all of a sudden they don't know how to design. Yeah. Ergonomic ergonomically yes. how to design a camera anymore it's yeah like, and well they, they i think everyone's expecting you to buy all the extra support mm. gear right so and i've got a few of those things uh so they're expecting you to buy those things now uh which those are cool too but it's more stuff to carry yeah and then it's more time setting up the camera i find now when i get to you know when i land in another country and i tell people listen it, we can't just get off the plane and start shooting I need to unpack the equipment. I need to put the camera together. Yeah. And I need to sort my gear out because it doesn't travel on the plane the way, you know, I can't just pop it out of the bag and no, I, no, I need to right. put this thing together now. So, uh, so that's a bit of a challenge. But you're loving that camera. I love that camera. The other one is the A7S II. It's a good uh, pairing. Yeah. And I mean, I can switch lenses in between them and low light capabilities. And, you know, I've got a couple of those gimbal things. Uh, I've been using recently the Kame TV Optimus, which... You know, the first when I saw the Came TV, I remember buying it's a lights. China brand, I yeah, think. It's yeah. a China brand. And I remember a few people making fun of me when I bought the, their lights. But, you know, I could buy four lights for the price of one. I know. <laughs> so I don't... And they've use, held up okay? Yeah. They, actually, the lights, they've been okay. They've been yeah. fine. But the the uh, the gimbals, those single-handed gimbals, and I think they're one of the first companies to come out with them. It was one of those things where, you know, they were doing knockoffs of everybody's stuff. And then they came up with the idea of the single-handed gimbal. And now people were copying them. Yeah. And so at first I had the, uh, what was that? The, I think it was called the Came TV single. And actually that thing was, it was amazing. Uh, and then they came out with the Optimus. I've got the Optimus now. And it's pretty cool because you can change it from the single-handed one to, you can put the, you know, just like the Ronin. Yeah. And the uh, bars and grip. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got those options and it wor works amazing. So uh, using the A7S II with, with the gimbal has been has been amazing that's a beautiful camera yeah yeah love the i love being able to change lenses and do different things uh, even some photography i've been doing a little bit more photography recently than what i, than what I used to so kind of coming back full circle right there yeah yeah so uh favorite lens that you like to uh right now for it depends on the situation so interviews if i'm doing interviews i love my rokinon cine cine lens uh 35 mil oh really uh, yeah. that thing oh it it's amazing. I, I, there's been a few times I've shot with that, and people afterwards are asking me, "Oh, did you shoot on a red?" And I go, "No, really? Oh, yeah, yeah." Just and the glasses gives it a different color. It, well, it's or, I, it's, the, just, it's that depth of field. Yeah, it's the that clarity. it's it's the clarity, the sharpness, and the, it, you know, it's not an expensive lens, but uh, shooting in 4K with that shallow depth of field. In fact, Holly uh, was yeah. over over here. Uh, Holly's from my team. Yeah, and she she saw an image that I had on my screen. I was doing a project for Jason Kenny. His campaign video for uh, his run for the conservative leadership in Alberta and so I had done some interviews there and uh, she looked up at the screen she's like wow and I'm like oh cool that's the reaction I want that's exactly what you want yeah yeah, yeah. so so that lens uh, yeah I love those Rokin on cine lenses because they're really affordable like 700 bucks so that one I also have is the, it a 2.8 it's a, no it's a 1.8 1.8 yeah yeah and uh, having that, I love the Cine. You know, I can I can turn those the the, the aperture with uh, without any clicks, and it's nice and smooth. Uh, I do find if you have the lens open all the way up, 
then you start to lose a bit of sharpness. So I try to keep it to around uh, around 2.8. That's yeah. kind of the sweet spot. And you're nice and sharp, but you still get this crazy... I mean, with with uh, lights in the background, the bokeh you get from it. Oh, it's just beautiful, cheap, cheap glass. Have to look into that. Yeah. Any tips on lighting for someone? You've done a lot of interviews. Yes. I love natural light. Yeah. I love natural light when I can get it, but you can't always get it. And... Uh, so using these little LED things, uh, especially because I can't bring my full light kit overseas, and that's where most of my shooting is, right? So I'm using available light, and then bring. Because you don't in. rent any gear when you land, you I don't pick no. up anything. No, very rarely do I do that. Uh, so using those little LED lights, um, right now I'm using an aperture. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's it's you yeah, can control the color temperature on it. So you use natural light. Mm-hmm. Do you use the natural light as your back or your or your key? Usually as my key. Yeah. Usually as my key. Um, but depending on the situation, you know, where a window's placed, whatever, it's it's one of those things that I've uh, you know, I kinda hope is maybe my specialty is walking into a situation having you know, you got 10 minutes to figure it out and set it up Yeah, and going with that, you know, and I, I love the fact, especially with the FS7, being able to set that camera up, shoot it in an S-Log3 gives me just a little bit more forgiveness and I can, I can correct a little bit more in post if maybe it's not exactly ideal. But I always keep that, you know, that uh, that aperture light panel with me. Yeah. And uh, and now I'll have this Lytra thing, um, and you know they've they've been able to uh, to handle most situations. And you mentioned the Shogun, is it the Atmos? the Shogun, the Atmos yeah. Shogun? Are you recording 4K to that now? It, as uh, at times, standard. No. So I usually uh, a lot of times I'll use use it as a monitor. But uh, recently, I've been doing some documentary work in Europe. I've been going around Belgium and Holland and stuff like that. And so this documentary where we have a host. Uh, I need to. I need three cameras. So uh, the three cameras that I'm using, because I need singles of each of the guests and my wide shot. Right. Right. So uh, before I'd use the GoPro, like a three camera watch. shoot. A three it's, camera It's an shoot. interview with the host and a guest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And and we go to their place. So a lot of times I've got ten minutes to try and set everything up. Uh, you know, figure out which lenses I'm using on on each camera. Uh, sometimes I have help. Sometimes I don't. Um, so the, the, uh, so what I'm using is the FS7 shooting in 4k S log three shooting, uh, on the a7 S2 S log three, 4k. And then my other camera is an a7 S. So before it started recording 4k internally. So I put the Shogun on that and now I've got three 4k cameras Ah. and I can go, but when I'm not using that, I love to use it as, as a monitor. Um, sometimes I record to it. Sometimes it's just a monitor depending on, you know, it, depending on the project. So those that I know that are working in 4k are either uh, shooting movies or yeah. TV shows, which is just a level of its own. Then other colleagues that are, are shooting commercials. Mm-hmm. What's it like shooting television long form in 4k and a one man band? Like what's the workflow? Is it just massive files and what you got to choose now that these cameras have so many different options for, for recording, you know, different, uh, different formats and different, you know, bits per second. Um, I find depending again, depending on the project, there are some that I will record just in HD, you know, but if I can record in 4k, I've been recording at the XAVC L. So it's a little bit lower. It's not the XAVC I, which gives you the most, you know, the bigger file sizes and much more information in your picture. So most of the stuff I record at X, XAVC L cause I still am delivering in HD, but shooting at 4k in that level, allows me now some of my interviews where I normally would have set up two cameras to do a wide and a tight shot and then cut between them. Now I set up one camera and I punch in. Yeah. 
you know. The good old punch in. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And uh, it saves me time and it saves me, it really is, it saves me having two sets of, of files that I have to have on the, on the system. So yeah. it does reduce my file footprint uh, on my in my storage by having just the one camera in 4K. So what advice would you give to somebody who wants to do what you do, camera, and... Uh, Sort of a one-man band mm-hmm. kind of guy, and they want to travel. What advice would you have? Uh, don't. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. It, you know what? It can be it, if if it works out for you. Because I know a lot of guys that have tried, and and I'm not saying that that I'm something special. I just I think I've I've been lucky in a sense that I've seen the opportunities and I've taken the right opportunities. Uh, but no, if you if you're looking for uh, if you want to see the world and get paid for it. Not, not necessarily paid great, <laughs> but you can make a living at it. Yeah. Then I'd say, uh, number one, shoot some weddings. Yeah. <laughs> Get some good Do it. Practice. It's a good place to start. Because good training. You, yes. You need to learn how to problem solve. You need to be able to figure out you're in the field, your camera stops working. What do you do? <sighs> right? So you, you need that. You yeah. need that kind of a mind. Uh, the other thing I would say is be open. Be open to any and all opportunities. And don't be a guy that says, uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm That's beneath me. I think as soon as you start doing that, you start closing doors. And you got to have the attitude that you're going to go in and whatever is on the other side of that door, you are going to do your best, whether it's a, a no-paying gig or a high-paying gig. And that's something that I've tried to do. I don't look at the budget and think, okay, I'm going to scale back my enthusiasm or my, my right. effort into it because it pays less. I, I will take whatever job and I will give my best effort that I can possibly do, no matter who it's for. If I have agreed to do that job, I will give you the best that I can do. No matter what, give, give your best and don't always look at that budget because if you give your best, people will recognize it and other opportunities will come. And I always see every job that I do as I see it as a doorway to other opportunities. It's not just a one-off, so I'm going to make as much money as I possibly can on this thing. I really look, you know, long-term, uh, you know, I try to see the big picture. If people recognize that I give my best, that should open up other opportunities where people can pay me more. And, and, and it has. It's worked out for me. Again, building relationships. Yeah. Okay, so I close off every podcast with a film term. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to throw this one out. You may not know this one because mm. you work as a one-man band. Yeah. So you would have no one to really yell this to. Is it team? No. <laughs> <laughs> crew. Crew. Oh, no. What is that? <laughs> Motley crew. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Last looks. Hmm. Last looks. So I would guess that means it's your last opportunity to take a look at what you've done before you shut the production down. Close. Okay. It's what you yell. It's a phrase to call in hair and makeup to give them a Ah. final touch up. Now, I just yell out. Usually I yell out final touches. Okay. But last look would mean it's if you have a talent on camera and you're getting ready to film any tweaks to his wardrobe or his makeup or whatever you would call last looks ah see i rarely do studio stuff so i rarely 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 work with uh, with hair and makeup yeah do you even have a hair like i mean you are shooting hosts out there yeah 
any what do you do to kind of just do they have some powder do they we've tried doing powder but a lot of times i found especially in the middle east it's so hot <laughs> that when we have tried using powder it ends yeah. up running all over the place and a lot of times it can be just me and the host just the two of us and i don't want to touch them right so <laughs> don't touch the talent. i don't want to that's a guy man i'm so not putting my hands when on you're lighting do you do you do keep that in mind then that you yeah. might have to fill the eyes a little more yeah. or something yeah and i'll try to put my my light maybe a little lower or i'll get a reflector and yeah. try to bounce some light into into the into the eyes i do i do take that in consideration when i'm when i'm lighting my guests outside or, or wherever they are because uh, i rarely have have makeup i mean women usually have their own makeup so right. when we when when we film them you know give them yeah i should yell last look or something women, mirror yeah <laughs> <laughs> women don't normally go on camera without making sure they've right. thoroughly inspected their faces they're, they're pretty good on, they're on yeah top of that. and a lot of times they will want to see a shot before i start recording <laughs> guys generally don't care the ones that do uh not too often that i come across that but when you know i'll i'll treat them like you know I'll try to show them uh if i can uh here's here's what you're looking like are you okay with that is there anything you want to change there's been a few times when like women have like fly away hair right you know, it's sticking out and and i'm you know normally my my inclination is to just well let it go this is them this is a documentary this is the way they look yeah you don't like the way they look sorry that's the way you look <laughs> but there's been times when i thought you know what when my wife watches this, she's going to say, why didn't you tell them? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so then I, that all the I time hate, too. so sometimes I have to go up and be like, oh, your hair is flying. You, you try to, you try to verbally cue them to fix their hair. And when they're not getting it, then, oh, you got to go in there and you got to go in and touch the talent. Yeah. Oh, I don't like touching the talent. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, this has been great. Oh, thanks. Thank you very much for doing this. You know what? It's, it's exciting. I saw what you're doing. I think it's great. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you more. Cool. Me too. Thank you. <laughs> so there you have it. Episode four is in the can. I tried to do it unthrottled. Let me know in the feedback if, if this helped. Uh, did it make for a better podcast? Is, is the energy up? You feel good? Um, thanks again to Chris Atkins for sharing his story with me. You can check out Chris's work at chrisatkins.ca and thanks for taking the time to listen to this podcast if you have any feedback or guest suggestions you can find us online at videotwins.com we're also on twitter and facebook all right looks like that's a wrap on this episode we'll see you next time